0: I was recently driving to Houston, Texas on a work trip. And out of the blue, a friend of mine from church texted me and said, hey, can I call you? Uh, this is a friend that we talk quite often. So I wasn't, wasn't unusual. Some, he calls for different reasons. We talk for different reasons. Um, so I was like, sure. And I actually called him. So we talked for a little bit and in the course of the conversation, He basically asked me if I was still Christian. Um, He said he'd been reading some of my posts online and some of the discussions I was involved in and instigating, and he basically said, do you still believe that Jesus is God? And (laughs) I kind of laughed a little bit and said, yes, of course I do. Um, But I think that's a good question for all of us to consider. Are you still Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? You know, it's meant a lot of different things at a lot of different times throughout history. Did you know that followers of Christ were not called Christians first? They were called followers of the way. That's the title they gave themselves first. Interesting. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so people didn't call themselves Christians. Christians at first they called them followers called themselves followers of the way which entails the idea that being a Christian is following a way it's not a title or a label it's not a it's not a institution that you belong to it's a way of living that's what that first title inferred do we know what it means to even be Christian? That's the question I want to talk about today. This is the Construction Monk podcast. I'm your host, Jay Randall Ori, and like I am a construction monk. So sometimes, uh, from time to time, I want to remind you like why I call myself a construction monk. I do work construction. I run my own home remodeling business, and I am a monk, which means that I practice contemplation. Now you normally would think that monks are those guys with a circle shaved on the top of their head that wear brown robes and live in a monastery, right? That's what you would think. I'm not that guy. I don't live in a monastery. I don't wear brown robes and I don't have a circle shaved on the top of my head. Um, Basically, that's the external trappings of a monk. But what makes a monk a monk is the practice of contemplation. And so I practice contemplation and I teach contemplation. And so and i live in the normal everyday world i have a wife three kids and a job so i'm a construction monk which means i'm a blending of these two things of the practice of contemplation which is a monastic thing and then i'm a construction guy which means i just live in the real world so i'm trying to blend these two things and i I do i live in the real world but i also practice contemplation so there you go well let's get into it what does it mean to be Christian, and actually, more specifically, what does it mean to live in a post-Christian world? What about a post-Christian world, and why why are more and more people claiming that we do live in a post-Christian world, that the West is post-Christian? And so I think, you know, if you just looked statistically, I believe, in the United States, like over 80% of the population still claims to be Christian, right? And so, it might seem absurd to even say that we live in a post-Christian world. But this is not a statistical anomaly we're talking about. This is not a statistical phenomenon. I'm not saying that the majority of people in the West don't claim to be Christian anymore. Or that's not what the claim of those who say we live in a post-Christian world mean. That's not what they're saying. What they're saying is that culturally, the influence of Christianity... Is waning number one and number two that what it means to be a Christian is now a cultural phenomenon not an actual religious phenomenon like lots of people claim to be Christian but the idea of a post-Christian world is that no one's really practicing it much anymore people are are belonging to a social group which wears a label called Christian but a lot of the people wearing the label aren't actually practicing the religion that's the that's the essence of what it means to say we live in a post-Christian world. It means that Christianity has become a cultural phenomenon, and no longer much of a religious phenomenon. Like people are going to church, people are socializing in this group with these accepted ideas and identifiers. But when you get into the text of the religion and the orthodoxy and the theology and the dogmas and what the theologians and teachers would say it means to actually practice the christian religion the majority of people aren't actually doing it and so you have christianity changing from a religious influence to a cultural phenomenon where it's it's like culturally acceptable to call yourself a christian or culturally the norm but it's not a religious phenomenon it's just kind of a group belonging concept. Does that, does that make sense? And I personally agree. Um, you know, I I agree with the idea that's put forth that we live. Uh, we are fast approaching what I would call a post-Christian world, a post-Christian culture, where Christianity is just a part of the culture, but people don't really have much depth involved into what it means to be a Christian well what does it mean to be a Christian that's that's kind of at the heart of this you know if if 80% of the population saying I'm Christian what would happen if we asked them well what does that mean to you what does it mean what does it mean to be a Christian of course we would get lots of different answers but I'm going to give my answer I'm going to try to define kind of the parameters of what it's meant historically and textually, like what does the Bible say it means to be a Christian? What did Jesus say it meant to be a Christian? So let me just remind you real quick before I move on from there. I am out in the woods on some trails in a 20 acres of woods close to my house. Um, just so you know, it's fall. Oh my gosh, it's barely light. It was so dark on the trails. Uh, But um, here I am on the trails. Um, Just so you know, I'm walking and you might... There's not many birds left. Unfortunately, I don't hear... We don't get to hear the birds and the cicada have faded. Uh, We just kind of have ended the season of the cicada. And um, it's getting cooler. It's getting more chilly, so... All right let's talk about it what what does it mean to be a Christian I mean I think we could come up with a lot of different definitions and I'm not saying there's just one monolithic definition like I'm not saying there can't be a diversity in understanding there is there's a diversity in orthodoxy there's a diversity in what we can say are the parameters but I think we can kind of hone in on a few basics and we can kind of try I would try to lean into what Jesus kind of demanded of his followers, right? So, I'll go back to those two early titles that followers of Jesus chose to call themselves, which one was a follower of the way, and the other was Christian. I think it was Antioch. I think that it, they were first called Christians in Antioch. So, if you don't know the history... Um, the first Christian church was in Jerusalem, the 12 apostles. That's kind of where everything happened with Jesus. It was a, in and, a, and around Jerusalem for the most part. He traveled around, he was a traveling rabbi. But most of the events of the Gospels and Jesus' life took place in and around Jerusalem. And so, naturally, after Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, after Jesus' life, the 12 apostles kind of established a church in Jerusalem. And that's pretty much where the church was for a while. Then, persecution broke out of, the, of Christians and Jews in Jerusalem. Uh, Rome was the occupying uh, authority at the time, the occupying government. Um, and so, they, there was always this tension between Jews and, and Rome. I mean, Jews hated Rome there was a group of Jews called the Sakaria, I think I'm getting the name right. But they carried these curved knives in their cloaks and they were, I think Sakaria means curved. They would carry these knives in their cloaks. These were actually called the Sakaria or the Zealots. It was a group of Jewish Zealots. And they would go around in crowds and when they saw a Roman official or officer, they would surround them in a circle and they would all stab him to death. And then they would just disperse into the crowd. I mean, Jews hated rome they hated rome jerusalem was god's city it was the jews city it was the jewish promised land god had given it to them and the romans coming in and occupying it and the romans were pagan the jews considered rome just because they worshipped false gods and okay so that's another thing there's another part piece to this history of why the jews hated the romans so much well the jews for for hundreds and hundreds of years the jews struggled with idolatry themselves they were constantly adopting the idols and gods of other other religions into their culture and god was constantly chastising them so eventually the jews went into went into um oh I'm, i'm blanking eventually they went into captivity both the northern and the southern kingdom which had been divided they went into captivity because of i mean this was what the, their prophets were telling them, like you, hey, you're, you're you're delving into this idol worship, and God's going to send you into captivity because of it, and they did go into captivity. And so basically, the Jews went through hundreds and hundreds of years of worshiping idols and being rebuked by God, and finally, the ultimate rebuke was going in to captivity being taken away from their promised land everything that identified them as Jews that Jerusalem and the temple and all their religious worship they were torn away from all of that and transplanted in these foreign lands and finally there was an exodus back to Jerusalem so they're finally come back to Jerusalem and guess what they got it they understood finally they understood hey, We should have nothing to do with idols. It took a long time and a lot of, like, a lot of struggle and hard lessons learned, but they got it. So fast forward to Jesus' day in Rome, which is a pagan, which, which, Rome, which has pagan idol worship. And the Jews are living in this pagan idol worshiping culture, and they hate it. They hate Rome because politically they're dominating them religiously. They're in exact opposition to the Jewish religion. And third, the Jews have been... Severely reprimanded by their God, Yahweh, for idol worship and here they are in the middle of an idol worshiping culture which is in control of them and demanding that they pay taxes. They hated paying taxes to Rome. That's why they asked Jesus, who should we pay? You know, should we pay taxes? It was such an offense to the Jews. They hated Rome. And so, um enter Jesus into this whole scene right so um, because of this tension that's what I was talking about I kind of lost my train of thought for a second I had to pause and like oh my gosh where was I going with this it's early people I'm still waking up so this is why there was such a tension between the Jews and the Romans and you can see like if there's a group of the population from the Roman perspective there's a constantly inciting riots and like trying like stabbing your elected officials and like these the Jews were just seditious to the you know, Romans and so eventually Rome kicked the Jews out of Jerusalem they 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 started persecuting the Jews and and as a I mean at the time Christianity was considered a sect of Judaism in the Roman perspective I mean Rome understood this like Rome had a lot of different religions and there were smaller groups within religions and so Rome was like yeah Christianity they're just a bunch of Jews and they were so the first church in Jerusalem eventually got pushed out and spread and it was actually a good thing because at the time you know the Christianity was just concentrated as a small group in Jerusalem but it pushed Christianity out and actually made the twelve apostles and the Jerusalem Christians into into missionaries and so as as Christianity kind of spread Uh, Then, by the time it got to Antioch, the Christians in Antioch started calling themselves by that name, Christian, which means little Christ, which is cool. Like, that's great. Before that, they called themselves followers of the way. Little Christ or follower of the way. I think both of those kind of speak to the core idea of what Jesus kind of taught his followers to do and be. Right, little Christ means that you try to be an image of Christ that's what you know a little Christ is like a little copy of Jesus in the world, right that sounds cool that sounds like yeah, so what was Jesus like? I'm gonna try and be like Jesus, little Christ follower of the way. I think follower of the way is a little more cl- uh, has a little more clarity to it like. It has the idea that there is a way of life that we're trying to follow. That Jesus didn't put forth a religion with dogmatic tenets, with a theology which is mental truth or a mental ascension to specific truths. But Jesus tried to teach a way of living. And I think therein lies the dominant difference between what we could say A true follower of Christ is an a cultural Christian, or an what I maybe what we could call an institutional Christian. I think institutional versus organic is another good way to think about this. Like an institution is based on a set of rules, a set of ideas. Ideas are a mental construct in your head. Like You can hold a lot of ideas separate from the way that you live. I think that's the crux of the difference between an institutional Christian and a follower of Jesus. And and please don't hear me trying to get snarky or condescending or critical in the sense of you're not a Christian. I'm kind of trying to call people out and say, well, you're not a Christian, you're not a Christian, and I'm a Christian, and you're not. Now, I'm not trying to do that, but I'm trying to say, hey, we need to define these things. Now, I can be critical, and and the word critical just means to be exact or exacting, to to be specific, right? So a lot of times we think of the word critical as being negative, but you can be positively critical, which which means you're going to critique things, and you're going to differentiate between things so I'm trying to differentiate and critique between what it means to be an institutional Christian which means you kind of just go to church, try to follow a few good rules, you have a mental conceptualization but you do you really have a practice, like is it your whole life and I think um, you can see some of the statements of Jesus that are just kind of brutal in a sense You know, he said things like, if you don't hate your father and your mother and your brother, then you're not truly my follower. You know, uh, there's one where he's like, "Um, only those who leave everything can really follow me. You know, he uh, there was the one guy who wanted to follow. And and he's like, oh, first, let me go bury my family. He's like, no, you either follow me or not none of this back and forth you can't like follow me today and not tomorrow there's this idea in the New Testament from Jesus that is like you're either all in or all out and look when Jesus says if you don't hate brother and mother like he's not being literal I mean Jesus taught love not hate but he's saying if you're he's trying to make a distinction if you're not all in all the way all the time then you can't be my follower And he said that consider the cost when you decide to be my disciple, consider the cost. The cost is great. What was the cost? What did Jesus say? If you want to follow me, or if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. Like self-denial. He didn't say deny part of yourself or deny these parts of yourself. He said deny your whole self. And follow me. Followers of the way. Jesus followers follow Jesus. One of my one of my pastors used to say that. Shout out to Sean Also Brooks. (laughs) Jesus followers follow Jesus. Now there's a a scripture I like that says, just as you have received Jesus, so walk with him. Like it's like you've decided that you like this Jesus guy. Like you you uh, you accept who he says he was. He's like, so that's good, but now walk in his way. Walk with him. Like walking, following, like these ideas. Uh, It's a a way of living life every day, every minute, every moment. It's this all-encompassing, holistic, all-consuming thing. Right? It's not a dance that we do where this is my religious part, and, and I've got the religious part of my life checked off, and this is my... You know, this, this, this compartmentalization of our thinking where I'm a Christian, but I'm also uh, on the bowling league, and I'm also a sports fan, and I'm also a literature buff, and I'm also like, Jesus is not a compartment in your life. Christianity cannot be a compartment, a part. The idea that Jesus put forth is that it's everything. It, it encompasses everything, and it influences and affects everything you do. Does that make sense? It doesn't mean that you need to sit in church 24-7 and be on your knees 24-7 and be reading the Bible 24-7. It means that that, as if if you are a follower of Jesus, it influences how you do everything, how you drive your car, how you shop in the grocery store, how you treat people. It's all influenced by the character of Christ and how Christ tried to live. It doesn't mean we all need to go be missionaries in China or Africa, or we all need to go be a professional pastor or teacher like it it means as you go to work as you do your job as you dig that hole in the ground and try and set a post as you you know as you teach at your classroom those third graders it's like everything you do is influenced and affected and directly directed by Jesus that's the idea so I mean, practically speaking, we can look at ourselves in parts, right? Like, your mind is a part of who you are. Your thoughts are a part of who you are and what you do and how you think. And so if Christianity is just about thoughts in your head, that's also compartmentalization, right? Well, my Christianity is because, I'm a Christian because I believe this and I believe that. I have these mental I have a mental ascension or ascent to these truths, right? I think, so if you don't know the history of Western culture, it is a history of becoming more and more mind-based in in, in how we think of truth. Um, I mean, from from Greece, which was kind of the founding uh, point of divergence from other cultures it, w- w- that's like the founding point of western culture. It starts with Greek culture and then into Rome and then from Rome, Europe and from Europe, you know, the western democracies. But from this very inception in Greece intellectualism was highly valued. Now it wasn't you know, it was more the intelligentsia like the, you had the lay people that be, that were more uh, agrarian and um, colloquial, and you know they believed in pagan religion, and that they were, you know, they were not like the average person wasn't necessarily well-read and intellectually based, rationally based. But you have rationalism kind of starting the idea of it starting in in Greece, and then growing through Rome, and then into West. Like so, now we have a culture that's like everybody reads, everybody, everybody's educated. But that's that started in Greece. So what you have is this growing, growing, growing of intellectualism and a rationally based approach towards truth and everything. So Christianity, Christianity grew up in that culture, which was more intellectually based and growing more and more intellectual. And so Christianity has grown more and more intellectual along with the cultures that it has been a part of. And so it's no surprise that Christianity as a whole has become hyper intellectual and and extremely mind based like extremely focused on well we got to get all our truths and all the we have to all we got to write all the stuff and all our commentaries and theology we got to make sure that we're th- we have right thinking i've talked about this already but orthodoxy means right thinking i've talked about this other idea there is orthopraxy which means right practice and so a lot of times christianity has focused too much on orthodoxy and not a lot on orthopraxy well hey there's some birds and I must have just been asleep when I first came it's nice to hear the birds so I think a big distinction between what we could call institutional Christianity and organic Christianity I don't want to say real Christianity because I don't think that's very fair but organic Christianity One of the real differences can be orthodoxy and orthopraxy, like right thinking versus right practice. And Jesus, I mean, notice Jesus—he was a teacher; he taught, like he got crowds together and kind of tried to talk to them about the kingdom of God. But his dominant, his dominant, and and central action, the centerpiece of what he came to do, was live. In front of people, the character of God. It was about a life, discipleship. He said, like his his final command to the to the disciples, the great what we call the Great Commission, right? This is like what should every Christian be doing? Go into all the world and make disciples. Make disciples, discipleship, discipleship is mentoring. It's living life with people in such a way that you're modeling for them what it looks like to be a healthy person, to be a God-centered person, to be a Christ follower. Jesus didn't say, go and start a bunch of colleges and teach people to think correctly about God. <laughs> now, the, the, you know we can see that clearly good thinking, ortho, orthodoxy, is a part of it right but when you take a part and you make it the whole that creates a lot of problems right if you take a part you know I mean think of it physically speaking if I'm like well I'm gonna take really good care of sorry I gotta I gotta text distracting get distracted by my phone so if we took a part and say like hey I'm gonna make sure uh, well, here's a good example. I'm gonna make sure that my skin and my hair looks really great, but I'm gonna eat McDonald's every day for the rest of my life. There was actually a documentary on this. <laughs> and I'm, okay, I shouldn't single out one fast food. I'm gonna eat fast food the rest of my life, but I'm gonna make sure my skin looks really good, right? I'm gonna make sure this one part of me is in really good shape. I'm gonna use oils and lotions, and I'm gonna shower, and you know. My skin and my hair are gonna look awesome. But if your internal organs are like failing, is that a good strategy? If you make if you focus on making one part good and not the whole, you could obviously see there will be problems. And Christianity unfortunately has done that. Hey, hey, there's a, a river down here. I'm gonna go down because I like the sound of water. You cannot take a part of Christianity, make it the whole. And make that one part really good and think the whole thing is good. That's what I'm saying. And Christianity traditionally has done that. We spent a lot of time making sure our thinking was right. Our ideas. We had the right ideas. And the, like truth. Christian truth was about Christian ideas and mental constructs. So we've made sure that our mind, in our mind and in our thinking we were Christian. But in our practice we haven't done so good. Always. I mean, look at the do you hear the water? It might be it might be too distracting, but it's cool, huh? Like you can clearly look at the history of Christianity and say, man, they've had some good ideas, but man, they've really not had some good some good application. Like they've really they've really done poorly when it comes to loving people. When it comes to treating people. When it comes to human rights Look at the history of Christianity. It is not great, people. And we have to look at that. We have to and look at you could say, oh, the Crusades, oh the Middle Ages. You know, like that's that's not me. That's not where we're at. Okay. Sure. Let's look how Christians are treating people today. You wanna get current? You wanna you wanna try and differentiate between those Christians thousands of years ago and your and yourself as a Christian or or people, or the Christian religion today, is it doing any better, treating people? You know, if you're not, I mean, sometimes it gets very, very um, specific, like, very, uh, very, very limiting. Certain, you know, certain Christian tribes can be very specific in who they treat well and who they don't. You know, again, there's a diversity within Christianity. It's a large religion. It's in many different national cultures and, and ethnicities and so it has lots of different flavors. But you can see certainly there are some forms that basically say, Well, my my small group of fifty Christians in this one church, I love those this people these people really well. But if you're outside of this group Like, their idea of being a Christian is, I'm going to love these 50 people really well, but everybody else can go to hell. Everybody else, I could care less. I could care less. Like, my neighbor could be dying on the street. You're not my Christian tribe. I mean, okay, that's a little extreme, but I mean, look at how Christians today are treating each other, are treating others, even each other, you know? Protestants can hate Catholics, Catholics can hate Protestants. And we probably don't even know who Eastern Orthodox are. (laughs) Um, I think, you know, one of the big critiques, and this is heartbreaking, and I'll try not to cry, but one of the big critiques is that Christians in the Middle East and in China are crying out, going, hey, you Christians in the West, do you see us? Do you know we're being murdered and killed and slaughtered? Do you care? And sure, you may not know. I mean, uh, the mainstream media doesn't typically represent. And I've even seen this. Like, I've seen the media say, uh, refugees in Syria are being persecuted. And I've read that same instance where it's actually Christians who, these refugees are actually Christians being displaced because of their religious beliefs by Muslims. Um, and so, like, you could just say, oh, there's darn Muslims. <laughs> but what, it, as, a, as a Christian, there's a group of Christians. Are you even loving Christians well? That's what I'm saying. And, like, look at in in uh, Ireland. One of the biggest fights in Ireland is between two Christian groups, Protestant and Catholic. They're killing each other. They're actually in a physical war. They've been. I don't know if that's still true today. The movie... Um, Michael Collins was about that war, the IRA, the, I don't know, what's the IRA stand for? The Irish Republican Army, I think, but like this, this exact war was between two Christian tribes killing each other because they both thought the other was irrelevant and needed to be eradicated. I mean, it became political, but Christians can't even seem to treat other Christians well throughout history. But then we could look at how Christians treat non-Christians. One of the first things my atheist friend told me after we had gotten to know each other a little bit was, he's like, man, I appreciate how you treat me because most Christians treat me horribly. I was involved in an online discussion group for about a year on Facebook called... uh, Theists, agnostics, and atheists, or I think it was atheists, agnostics, and theists, whatever. But it was like, it was, the whole purpose was for these three groups of people to talk amongst each other. And man, I'd never seen so many nasty conversations from Christians, name-calling, brutal, just mean-spirited, just like Christians trying to eviscerate non-Christians, like verbally, just. Talking to them in such a disrespectful, dishonoring way, like, and then we can go to the LGBT community. I think that is probably the most. Um, I'm trying to think of the, of the best word, but it's the most disparaging example of how Christians are treating non-Christians. Like, did Jesus is this how, is that? I mean, of course, we can go back about fifty years or so and look at who do you think was lynching black people? They were Christians, people. They were Christians lynching black people. Christians were involved in slavery. Western Europe was. Were, these were Christian monarchies, Christian nations. They were the instigation of of, of slavery. Christians have not had a great history in practicing Christianity practicing the way of Jesus how did Jesus live? how did the first Christians live? that's a good like they had direct contact with Jesus and they wrote some letters called the New Testament that, that make up most of the New Testament like how did Jesus live? so Basically, I mean, there's a couple of good stories we could tell, but basically the people that the religious leaders of Jesus day, the, Jew, the Jewish religious leaders, the people that they treated like we treat atheists and homosexuals, those people that were outcasts in Jesus religion, Judaism, those are the people Jesus went to and hung out with and embraced, one good story is the the woman caught in adultery. Now textually some people think this was added. Uh it wasn't in the it's not in the original, but just because it's added doesn't mean it's not true. You know. Uh all th- th- uh, three of the gospels, if you don't know, three of the gospels were written by eyewitnesses. John, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, I'm sorry. Did I get that wrong? No. Sorry Matthew, Mark and John are all eyewitness accounts. Luke the physician, he actually compiled his gospel from secondhand stories or from eyewitnesses you know but it was it was a secondhand account like he went and he interviewed people you know he was like an, in, an investigative reporter right <laughs> he interviewed people and he put together his gospel based on interviews but it's not hard to imagine that someone came forth with this story that and it was a true story in it but it hadn't made it into the original gospels like all four gospels have different stories they tell even the same stories in different ways these are just accounts of people's recollection and so just because the i know that was a long tangent just because the story of the woman caught in adultery was added in a later manuscript doesn't mean it's not a true story but i think it's still a good story and it still reveals it probably was it's a very specific story so The woman caught in adultery. And this was actually the religious leaders specifically trying to set a trap for Jesus. They bring this woman in front of him. She's been caught in adultery. The law of Moses, the religion of the Jews, says exactly what is supposed to happen here. She's been caught in adultery. That's a sin punishable by death. And not just any kind of death, but stoning, which is one of the worst kind of deaths you can imagine. It is let's not even talk about it. It's unimaginable. So here we are. Jesus claims to be a rabbi claims to be a prophet to have direct contact with God and the Jewish leaders who hate him bring this woman and say okay Jesus you know God you know the law the law is God what are we supposed to do here what, what, what's the law say? Jesus is really calm. He bends down. He starts riding in the sand. I imagine, because they've thrown her on the ground, I imagine maybe he bends down close to her. He gets close to her. She's so filthy to these people. She's, She's dead. She's as good as dead. Jesus bends down. He's quiet. There's this mob around, like ready, with stones in their hands, ready to kill this woman. He's right down in the dirt with her. And they're like, come on, Jesus. Let's get this going. And Jesus looks up and he's like, the one of you, uh, the one among you who is without sin can throw the first stone. Bam. The whole mood shifts the wind just gets sucked out of the room or the scene and you know what it says it says the oldest in that mob left first and the youngest finally left after all the elders were gone nobody remained to throw stones Jesus looked at the woman and said who is here to accuse you no one the Jews and the Jews mind God gave them this law God gave them some good ideas and they and these are people who knew the law really really well not only knew the law but had expounded on it through commentaries they knew what should happen they were ready to kill somebody and Jesus says no that's not what God's about not at all crazy, huh? Jesus stood up for the people that his religion was literally killing, persecuting, oppressing. Jesus even told the, the leaders, he's like, you are so oppressive. You lay heavy burdens on people's backs and you don't lift a finger to help them. You shut the gate of heaven in people's faces and you don't enter yourself. He's like, you, are, you have gotten God so backwards, you're heading in the opposite direction. This is not what it's about. Jesus ran to the outcast and the lowly and the broken and the hurting. He hung out with, quote, sinners. And he was accused by the religious leaders of not even knowing God because of it. They told him he had a demon. Basically, they called him Satan. <laughs> and he's like, nope. You'd know because your father is Satan. <laughs> Takes one to know one. <laughs> Man, how did Jesus live his life? He hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes. That's what, that's, what, that's what the scripture says. And he told the Pharisees, like these are the people that are running to God while you're running away. These are the people that are entering the kingdom of heaven before you like you're you're stuck you're not you're hardly getting there at all these people are just the people that you say are the furthest from God are closest and you who think you're closest are furthest that's what he's saying it's like you don't even understand this whole thing and Jesus said if you want to understand this whole thing follow me be like me well, how, how what was Jesus like he lived a certain way he lived with compassion And mercy. He reached out to people. He touched the unclean and the unlovable, the unworthy, the sinner, the unholy. And he said, God loves you. Jesus loved people really, really well. And I think the cross is Jesus' ultimate declaration that God would rather die. And suffer than make anybody else suffer and die. It's a, it's a protest of the whole system, religion and politics, that's killing people for its own power and its own institution and its own right thinking. If you don't realize that orthodoxy by itself leads to unhealth, to great unhealth. It's led. It leads us to kill people and hate people because they don't have it right and we do. If you don't realize that making that one component, the whole, has done great harm and it has led us to a post-Christian world, has led us to thinking we are a Christian when we're not even practicing anything near the life that Jesus taught, lived, and set an example for us to live by, If we don't realize that, then we are where we are, hating people in the name of Jesus, killing people in the name of Jesus, because we have the right thoughts, but we don't have the right practice. And Jesus didn't really emphasize right thinking as much as right practice. It was a way. He said, be a follower of the way. I am the way. I am am the truth i am the life jesus you know jesus put forth truth put forth truth as a person as a way of living and not thoughts in your brain the dominance of intellectualism in western culture has created a dominance of intellectualism in christianity it's what historically has been called christian scholasticism if you don't know that history St. Augustine was a convert to Christianity in the 300s. He was also a Greek philosopher. He was highly trained in rhetoric. He was a professor at a college, basically. And he began to blend Greek philosophy with Christian theology. Or with Christian teaching. And that actually created... This was the founding of Christian theology. Of... I just ran into a spider web and the spider was actually on my recording device on his back hey buddy i'm gonna try and now he's clinging to my phone sorry you probably uh, couldn't hear me as well because there he goes lift off he dropped down i generally don't like spiders in my face but it doesn't freak me out spiders are our friends they have lots of good benefits i'm not going to oppress and persecute spiders. (laughs) Mm -hmm. they're here for a reason God has given them life. Um, uh, Jesus didn't emphasize a right way of thinking as much as a right way of living. And as I, as I was saying, the dominance of right thinking in Western culture is just what it is. It's true intellectualism. We have an int- we have an intellectually focused Christianity because. That's what our culture has valued. And even today, you can get online and hear apologists. You can see, like, defenders of the faith, well-reasoned arguments for why God is right and Jesus is right. and That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not the centerpiece of what Jesus said was the pith and the marrow of being his follower. Uh, I think it was Peter said, live such good lives among the pagans that though they disagree with you, they'll see your good works and they'll know God loves them. That's a really rough paraphrase, but basically he's saying, like Peter is saying, what's this about? Live a really good godly life in front of people. And even when they disagree with your beliefs, they'll see your life and they'll know that's what it's about. Loving people really well, you know, you can have all the great ideas in the world. You can have all the right theology in the world, all the right doctrine, all the right thinking. But if you're killing people and you're oppressing people and you're kicking people down and you're calling people names and you're labeling people sinners and you're making them feel ashamed and you're making them feel oppressed and marginalized and hated, that's not Jesus there's a great gap between your good thinking and your life and how you live and how you treat people if you, tell, if you say God is love but you treat people hatefully there's a big gap between your thinking and your practice between your orthodoxy and your orthopraxy Jesus was much more about orthopraxy about how you live being a Christian is about loving people really well. I mean, if you look at Christianity, even even if you look at orthodoxy, right? About right thinking, there is such a diversity. Some things are actually even opposite. You can find doctrines and thinking about on things that are completely the opposite. Baptism. You got to get in the water. Well, if you don't get in the water, you're not saved. No, it doesn't matter about the water. It's the Holy Spirit. Did you receive the Holy Spirit? No, no, no sprinkling sprinkling's okay. No, if you sprinkled someone but they weren't immersed in the water, not saved. No, oh, I don't believe that. You're not a Christian. When <laughs> you were sprinkled as a Catholic, you're not saved. You're going to hell. Oh, really? <laughs> Thanks for letting me know. Appreciate it. <laughs> we're just like, I, I, are we just going around telling everybody they're going to hell? Is that Christian? I mean, I almost feel like in practice, Christianity is a bunch of self-righteous hypocrites going around telling everybody they're going to hell because they don't they don't have the right the right orthodoxy you're not from my tradition you're not from my church i was doing i'm in the middle of a job right now and i started yesterday i'm doing a few like handyman punch list things at this house that the uh this couple is trying to get on the market in a week and so Just in conversation, we actually found out we go to the same church, which I didn't know. There's three services. She goes to a different service. Hey, don't judge me. But she's like, yeah, my grandma came out of uh, the Church of Christ. It's a a non-instrumental church. It's actually the same tradition that I grew up in. It's called the Non-Denominational Churches of Christ. And she's like... And she's like, yeah, and I know this to be true, like the non-instrumental churches are very legalistic, like you don't wear makeup, you don't cut your hair, you know, women don't have short hair. And she's like, yeah, my grandma, you know, she thinks that, you know, if you wear makeup and all that, you're going to hell. Like, is that Christianity? If you don't look like me and talk like me and think like me, you're going to hell? I mean, yes, pretty much. There may be finer nuances and more subtle nuances, but pretty much a lot of Christians walk around going, hmm, don't think like me, don't look like me, don't act like me. You're going to hell. But if you want to go to heaven, you should look like me and think like me and act like me. But how are they acting? (laughs) How are we acting? What does it mean to be Christian? What does it mean to live in a post-Christian world? It means that our orthopraxy doesn't match our orthodoxy. It means that we're not really practicing what Jesus taught. We're just acknowledging a few good ideas. And that's it. And calling ourselves Christians. And it also means we've made Christianity about the wrong thing. About getting to heaven. And not going to hell. Instead of living in the character of God. Like, I I know this sounds crazy. Because it's not something you've probably heard. But I don't think it's about going to heaven or not going to hell. Getting saved. I mean, that's pretty much what most Christians think Christianity is about. Get saved, go to heaven. And like make sure that you're still saved along the way. So you go to church and you give your 10% and you take your communion and you do all the rites and rituals, the sacraments, to ensure that you've sealed the deal and you don't lose your salvation. Like getting your salvation, losing your salvation. That's what it's about. And so under that paradigm, it is about sinning or not sinning. And sinning is just trying to be a good person and kind of do a few rituals. Like sinning isn't the same thing as Or being a good sin manager isn't the same thing as being a good follower of Jesus. Did Jesus talk about sin and heaven and hell? Yes. And you'll have to go back to one of my other podcasts called What About Heaven and Hell? Because I talk about kind of how we've misinterpreted those things as this other place. But literally, it's not another place we go. That's what scripture says. Revelation says that heaven comes down and the earth becomes heaven. It says the dwelling of God is now with men. It doesn't say the dwelling of men is now with God. Like God is trying to, and Jesus, like this is all the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, you know, concept that Jesus talked about. But Jesus is trying to bring about heaven here. And he's trying to eradicate hell here. It's about how we live here, which will usher in this final culmination of this place becoming simply, completely engulfed and encompassed by God life and God character and God thriving and God's presence. Like It's the idea of the presence of God that makes heaven what it is. And it's about our presence and God's presence. And like, you can live in that now. It's not, like, God's not somewhere else. This idea of heaven coming to earth. Like, that's a picture, people. It's a metaphor. It's happening, right? And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is now. It's coming. And eventually it'll culminate and be fully here. But it's here now. And he actually said, the kingdom is inside you. It's how you live. It's about how you live. A post-Christian world is about how we're not living in keeping with the life of Jesus. And so the bottom line is, you've got to know how Jesus lived his life. His character. It's about his character. And I've talked about this before, but when, when Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, you'll receive. God will give it to you, ask, seek, knock. Whatever you ask in my name will be given. That phrase, in my name, means in my character. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. So basically, when you are living in the character of God, you when you pray, you'll be asking God to do what God wants to do, and God will do it. But the whole point is living out of the character of God. And my particular tradition, contemplation, teaches this, like, it's not in your brain. It's in your whole being. Contemplation teaches what they call mystical union, which means, like, we can have this connection, this God connection that is so deep and so intimate, intimate, that we are basically the image of God in the world, the image of Christ. We are little Christs. We bear his image. We don't talk His language. We don't speak his message. We live as Jesus in the world. Everything we do, how we treat people, the heart of our character, the center of our being is centered on how Jesus lived and the being of Jesus and being with Jesus. Followers of Jesus follow Jesus. Are we really in a post-Christian world? You know, it's easy to look at the surface of things and make judgments. But honestly and ultimately, each one of us has to decide that for ourselves. And only God can see in our hearts. And I can't judge someone else's relationship with God, and neither can you. We can make sweeping general statements about the culture of Christianity and Western cultures and the influence. We can definitely see that the influence of the institutional Christian religion is waning. But maybe that's a good thing because maybe it's not that healthy. What I want to propose to you is this. A post-Christian world isn't the same thing as a post-Christ world. We can still be Christ followers in a post-Christian world. And maybe the way we get to be more of a Christ follower is through a post-Christian world where it's not just everybody patting each other on the back for saying the sinner's prayer and getting saved and getting dunked in the water and we're all part of the club. Maybe we need to to let the Christian club die and embrace this post-Christian world in order to get to a current Christ world like where Jesus is the center living as Jesus lived is the center of what this is about and not just belonging to the Christian club. Maybe we really need to go through a post Christian culture to get back to Christ. Post Christian doesn't equal post Christ and may equal the opposite It may actually force us to consider that we haven't been living in the character of Jesus and it may actually force us back. I hope. And I believe that. And I actually know that God is taking his people on a journey back to him. And you see, if you read the Bible, there's this constant cycle of engagement, falling away, and calling back. Like this whole, all throughout history, and even the history of the church, it's been revival and renewal, and then, of and a calming and a falling away and then another revival and this like cyclical patterns of the church kind of forgetting its identity and forgetting the core of what it's supposed to be doing and getting sidetracked into more orthodoxy than orthopraxy what does it mean to be a Christian are we living in a post-christian world you have to search that out for yourself but please do that's what I'm saying like do you know how Jesus lived Do you know for yourself? Have you read for yourself? Are you engaged? Are you really striving to know? Are you just passing that responsibility off to someone else to tell you what to do? Just show up at church once a week, give 10%, and you're good. And just live the rest of your life however you feel like. And if people don't line up with your tribe, then you can kick them to the gutter and tell them to go to hell. Search it out. It's worth worth it. It's important. Post-Christian isn't post-Christ. I think we're actually heading in a good direction. And I know God is taking us in a better direction, out of the malaise of a Christian culture that isn't always so great. Reminding us again what it means to be a follower of the way, a little Christ. I hope this has been helpful and good and challenging and thought-provoking and maybe it pissed you off. (laughs) Well, good. Maybe you need to be. Maybe you need to be riled up. Don't be mad at me, though. Use that energy. Focus it in a positive way for change. This has been the Construction Monk Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Randall Ori, and you can find more content at www.moderncontemplative.com. Thanks, guys. Love you all. Thanks for joining in. Bye.